0: Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of his people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Most people know that public speaking is is huge on the fear factor scale. Uh, They say that a lot of people would rather die than and do something like public speaking. I don't know if that's actually true. I really have a hard time believing whether that's actually. You'd really rather die than get up in front of a crowd and speak. Uh, but, but it is an intimidating thing. Why would you want to get up and speak in front of someone else? Uh, it's terrifying. It, it really is. And it's terrifying uh, because I think there's the possibility of looking really, really foolish, really foolish. You're up there, you're trying to make a point, you're trying to convey some information, maybe you're even trying to present a convincing argument, but what if you mess up? What if you stutter? What if you say the wrong things? What if you just look like an absolute idiot and like you don't have a clue as to what you're talking about? Growing up, I was terrified, of getting up in front of any sort of crowd, any any number of people. In fact, uh, in seminary, in Greek class, I was horrified when Dr. Arnold would look my direction and he would say, Jared, could you parse this verb for us? Or could you read from the Greek text for us? And in front of all my students, that was a horrifying prospect. It could be terrifying to get up in front of a crowd to talk. You know, it can be even more terrifying to get up in front of uh, so-called experts or people who are really, really important. And here in Acts 25, 13, 26, 32, Paul's going to stand up. He's going to stand up in front of a whole assembly of elites who are decked out in their finest. <laughs> probably many who are are, are, are kind of bored.'re they're, they're probably thinking, why why do I have to be here? I got a lot of other things I could probably be doing. My time is rather precious here than it's so precious. Why would I spend my time listening to... This insignificant looking Jewish man. But you know, not only did that assembly include, you know, people, high up officials and, you know, prestigious commanders and things like that, Paul is now standing in front of someone that many referred to as king there was ever a moment when you didn't want to look foolish, this was it. Mark Twain once said, it's better to keep your mouth closed and let people think you're a fool than open it and remove all doubt. Boy, how would that have felt if you're standing there in Paul's shoes in that assembly? What would you have done? What would you have said, or, or, or even more so, what would you have been so careful to make sure that you did not say? You know, the surprising thing, actually shocking thing about this passage is that the thing that you think Paul would be most concerned about is whether or not he's going to come across looking foolish, but we find that there's something far more important on his mind. Shall we get into it? So to Caesar, you have appealed. To Caesar, you shall go. Those were the last words that we have. Festus, the governor, sang to Paul during this hearing where Paul was standing in front of all these Jewish leaders who were steadfast in their determination to see him put to death. The problem that Festus now had was, okay, I'm gonna send this man to Caesar, to the, the highest authority in the empire, but what am I gonna write? What am I going to tell Caesar about this man, Paul? I mean, I could look really foolish here. It, in fact, it could be very, very foolish for me if I say the wrong things or, or, or not say anything at all. I mean, who knows how furious Nero might become. He got rid of my predecessor for an indistri- indiscretion. And that guy got off easy because his brother is the best friend of the emperor. I don't have that luxury. I don't have that kind of insurance policy here. I need to be very, very careful. Now, of course, if Festus had done the right thing, well, he would have just let Paul go. He would have just said, hey, there's not enough evidence. I'm sorry, Jewish leaders. There's not enough evidence to convict this guy. We just got to let him go. If he would have done that, he would have avoided this whole predicament that he is now in. But he knew that he didn't want to upset these Jewish officials. I, he's just taken on this new role. He is to keep the peace there in the land, and I don't want to do anything to poison this well, especially so early on in my role. So we make no mistake here, right? We, we understand this is all about politics. That's the game that Festus was playing here. Well, the answer to his worries, to his concerns, it came with the arrival of a man named Agrippa II who of course was the son of Agrippa I, who we all know and love. He's the man who had James put to death. He's the one who arrested Peter. And he's also the one who died a miserable death being eaten by parasitic worms. That was actually a really good message. You can go back and listen to that one. That was fun. Agrippa II, he was appointed the king of Lebanon and he succeeded his uncle, who was the former king of Lebanon. And that came with the privilege of having to be able to, uh, to choose who the Jewish high priests would be. Very interesting role he had there. But three years later, he became king of a, of a much larger territory, much larger kingdom. This guy, when we say king, we, we mean king. This was big time. This guy was the real deal. He is not the emperor, okay? But his prestige is on a scale that far exceeds this this measly governor, Festus. And so when the king comes to town, Festus goes, aha, maybe I'll ask him. Maybe he will be able to advise me because he has a relationship with the emperor like I don't have. He can help me. And that brings us to verse 13. Now, when some days had passed, this is Acts chapter 25, verse 13. Some days had passed, Agrippa, the king, and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying, there's a man left prisoner by Felix and when I was at Jerusalem the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him asking for a sentence of condemnation against him and so Festus lays out the case before this Agrippa the 2nd and he gives all the necessary details here including the fact that these accusers these Jewish accusers well they're bringing charges, but they really don't have the support that they need. They don't have the evidence that they need. All they're really presenting is, is some complaints, some grievances that Paul is out there, and he's preaching a message that, that contrasts to what they believed. In particular, was Paul's assertion that this Jesus, who the Romans had executed, was actually no longer dead. And so Agrippa listens to this. And he's probably nodding, and he probably goes, okay, this is very interesting. And then I wonder if maybe in a sort of superior, kind of self-important kind of way, he says, oh, I'd like to hear this man myself. And so it's set for the next day. Now, you may have noticed, Agrippa's not alone when he shows up. Verse 13 says, he's accompanied by someone named Bernice. Who's this Bernice person? Bernice is his sister his sister. She had actually been given in marriage to his uncle, who was the former king of Lebanon, and she bore him two sons. But when her father Agrippa passed away, well, in, that was AD 48, she moves in with her brother Agrippa. And from time to time, she would she would Find a guy that she liked, and she'd get married here or go off here and do. That. But she—it seemed to be a rule. She always ended up back with staying with Agrippa. Now I'm using that term "staying with" very loosely here, because the relationship involved a lot more than just being under the same roof. Agrippa and Bernice, they would have made the cover of all the tabloids there in that day. But, but despite the whisperings that took place in the marketplaces and the gossip that reached the countryside, these two, they seem completely undeterred in their relationship. No, it's cool. We're good. We're, we're hanging out. We, we're inseparable. We go everywhere together. Just like we saw a scandal when we looked at Felix, the governor before Festus. I know there's a lot of names here. It's hard to track. We looked at his scandal. He had this glamorous wife, Drusilla. Oh, yeah. And Drusilla is actually the sister of Agrippa and Bernice. But you remember, he uh, stole her away from her husband. Just like that. I mean, we got scandal- going on here too. It's, they're up to their ears in scandal. Look at verse 23. So the next day, Agrippa and Bernice, they came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And this is where, you know, as far as our imaginations might be able to take us in regard to the pomp, the, the glitz, the glamour, the power, the pompous self-aggrandizing that could, you know, we, all these things we can imagine in our minds, There's probably even more. We're talking about the pulling out of all the stops. We're talking about the fanciest royal garments. We're talking about the shiniest, most regal of military uniforms draped over these high-ranking officials. We're talking about chariots. We're talking about banners. We're talking about drums. We're talking about masses and masses of people lining the streets to get a glimpse of this shameless spectacle, I mean, make way for Prince Ali, right? But really this is make way for the king, for King Agrippa, Agrippa. And so following the procession, they all head into the assembly hall. And that's when Festus calls Paul in. And can you imagine what that must've been like? The highest, most elite people in the land, along with some of the top ranking military officials They're all gathered there in one place, and there walks in Paul. This nothing special, smallish, physically unimpressive, bald Jewish man. What a contrast of characters, right? This is not Charlton Heston standing six foot three, piercing blue eyes and this magnificent flowing beard and that regal red Hebrew robe standing there before Pharaoh. This is not that. This was the humble aging guy who had been beaten, who had been stoned nearly to death, spent the last two years in prison. And in this man lies the problem. This is the subject of all the controversy. He's the man who, by all appearances, you wouldn't give him a second glance, and yet there he stood before all these noble people, powerful people, some of the most powerful that the world knew. That's our picture this morning. Now we need to see what God has to say to us through this. Verses 24 to 27. Festus, he makes a formal declaration uh, to the king of the real reason for being here. He wants everyone else to know, okay, this is the reason we're gathered here today uh, to hear this man. He states that he's at a loss, really. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to write to the emperor concerning this man's charges. And that's when Agrippa takes control and he addresses Paul and asks him to speak. Now, what would you be thinking? You're Paul. What would you be feeling? How would you be choosing your words in front of all of these people? After you'd been in prison two years, knowing your fate, it's, it's really undecided here. This is kind of just a, just a next step before you get to the place where your case is really going to be decided. Now, if you've been with us through our study of Acts... You probably are thinking, I might have a pretty good idea of what Paul is going to say here. And you're probably thinking that he's basically going to say what he said to all of the other officials that he has stood before. He's probably just going to give his testimony. And if that's what you're thinking, you are right. You're exactly right. Look at Acts 26.2. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And Agrippo, he actually was familiar with all of those Jewish customs we already mentioned. He he had the right to choose who the next high priests were going to be. He knew very well what the Jews believed. And I imagine he was also very, very familiar with some of what these people of the way, these followers of Jesus thought as well. Verse 4. Paul goes on, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time if they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial before, because of my hope in the promise God uh, made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And so as Paul has done before, he's making it very, very clear that his story, it it is very much in line with mainstream Judaism. As a Jew himself, he had taught he had believed all those things from childhood. In fact, the fulfillment of this promise that all the Jews were looking forward to, all he's saying is, the fulfillment's come. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those Old Testament promises. It foretold of his arrival. He's come. And then he says, why is it incredible that any of you don't believe that, that God raises the dead. And of course, that's the same question that needs to be put to anyone who says, yeah, I believe in God, but you know, miracles, I, I really can't handle the miracle part. And that's where we got to ask ourselves, how can any of us believe that it's, it's beyond the power of an all-powerful God to do something out of the ordinary powerful? I mean, if, if creation itself is not a miracle, I don't know what is. And if God made it and he gave life to it, then how can he not infuse life back into it? It just doesn't make sense. Is that so difficult to understand? And Paul continues, I myself was convinced, I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I was there and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them and I punished them often in all of the synagogues and I, I tr- tried to make them blaspheme and in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And this is where Paul builds up in everyone's minds, all of his listeners' minds, this tension point. And it begs the question, well, if that's who you were, then why are you this now? Paul, you, you gotta explain. What's, what's the reason for this dramatic turnaround in your life? And in verse 10, it, it said that he cast his votes for Christians to be put to death. That leads, you know, that leads some scholars to think that maybe Paul wasn't just a Pharisee. Maybe he wasn't just this well-respected, well-educated Jewish man but if he's casting a vote here, the, the, the literal is he's tossing his black voting pebble, as they would do, into the mix. And a lot of scholars think, well, that's an indication he's actually, he's actually a, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, of that Jewish high council. So what's the deal? <laughs> I mean, how is it possible that this man is now standing here before us in front of all his former colleagues here and and they want him dead? It just doesn't make sense. But you see, that's exactly where Paul wanted them to be struggling because he wants to give them the explanation. He wants to show them that the whole reason for this turnaround in his life, it's because of this encounter that he had with this man named Jesus. He goes on, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. There is your explanation. That's the explanation. Paul says, I've had a supernatural experience here with a man whom the Romans, you guys executed, but he's alive now. And he spoke to me from the heavens. Well, nothing out of the ordinary here. this is is completely fantastic, absolutely fantastic. And the people that he's speaking to, I mean, yes, they had their their pagan gods whom they they venerated, but they're very much people of the world. I mean, they believed in power and in prosperity and pride and posh living. They live for for their passions, right? Uh, They're bent on getting as much out of life as they possibly can could regardless of what anyone else thought. I mean, clearly Felix, he didn't care what people thought when he took his bride away from that other guy. And and here the king, in a moral relationship with his sister in broad daylight. These are the people that he's speaking to. And to them, well, Paul just lays out for them this experience, his God-given mission. In a miraculous experience, God has called me to both the Jews and the Gentiles to be a witness so that their blind eyes might be opened. They might de- be delivered from their master, Satan, have forgiveness of their sins, be become part of God's people. It, it says in the ESV there, uh, what we just read, a place, there's the word place. It's actually better translated of a share or a portion. Yeah, that's That's what, people who come to faith in Jesus are going to have. They're going to have a share, they're going to have a portion, and what he's getting at here, for these royals who had everything, he's saying that those who trust in Christ, they have something that is laid up in store for them that is far better, far more glorious, far more spectacular than anything even the most powerful of people here on earth are experiencing. Let me ask you something. I, I, what, what, what would you say? You're in front of a, a, a judge who's presiding over your trial. What are you going to say to this man or this woman? Now, How comfortable are you going to be at your visit to the Oval Office or your hearing in front of that uh, congregation, uh, uh, con, uh, congressional committee? How are you, how you going to feel? What are you going to say? Paul goes on in verse 19. Therefore, Agrippa, O king Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, then throughout all the region, of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple, tried to kill me, To this day, I've had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ, that is the Messiah, must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Do you see how the good news of the gospel is just like peppered, peppered through his speech here? He goes from telling them of the forgiveness of sins that they can experience to the deliverance from the kingdom of darkness that they can know through Jesus Christ to telling them, you need to repent. That is, you need to turn around from your life of rebellion against God and you need to turn to God. He's telling them of this great hope that was promised ages ago and that it's been realized in this Messiah, Jesus Christ, who suffered on their behalf and has now been raised from the dead to life just as those who trust him will be raised. Now, of course, Bernice and Agrippa and Festus and the whole gang that was there, all the commanders, all the officials, they said to each other, whoa, how did we not know this? I mean, it's, it's so simple, yet so brilliant. And Bernice and Agrippa, they look to each other and they go, oh no, what have we been doing? this isn't right. I, I, you got to move out. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, that's the way you would expect it to go, right? When you lay out for your, for your boss or your fellow employees or your teacher or your professor or, or the women in your social circles, uh, how they need to come to faith in Christ, that's exactly how they're going to respond, right? I mean, why wouldn't it go that way? This is the best news ever, right? You believe it, don't you? I mean, you're here on a Sunday morning. You could be out to breakfast, you could be out at the beach, you could be doing whatever it is that you want to do, but you came here to worship the one who saved you. Why wouldn't we think that people would just want to like wouldn't want to just jump on board with this great news? Is is that what Paul was thinking? I mean, that's what he's sharing here. Do you think that's he's just sharing it like this because he's just completely out of touch? He doesn't have a grip on reality? I mean, what is he? Was he just thinking? Of course, yeah. Well, well of course, Bernice, Agrippa, Festus, the whole gang—they're—they're going to see that this makes perfect sense here. They're going to just accept and believe, and we're—this is going to be great. But that's not how it goes. Twenty-four, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, "Paul, you're out of your mind." <laughs> out of your mind, Paul. You're nuts. You're insane. You sound like a babbling fool. You sound like a lunatic. I'm paraphrasing now. Why, why would they think he's out of his mind? Well, I, I, I think there could be a few different reasons. Maybe it's because anyone in Paul's shoes in, that's in their right mind, well, if they were standing there before all of these officials, before this king, just be falling to their knees, begging for release. <laughs> Let me go. I'm innocent. Or maybe it's because no one would, uh, would have been risking their life for some dead guy. <laughs> for this guy, Jesus, you're risking your life, really? Or maybe it's because who in their right mind would be willing to put aside their own freedom for the ridiculously slim chance that a man as important as Agrippa II is going to turn from his pleasure-seeking life to trust in someone named Jesus? Or maybe it's because who in their right mind is going to think that people like Agrippa and Bernice, as neck deep as they are in their immorality, that they're actually, they can actually be forgiven? <laughs> really? You know what they're doing? You know all the stuff that, that is behind closed doors? Forget about it. Or maybe it's because who other than a crazy guy, <laughs> a crazy guy, would step away from a well-respected, highly educated life. Maybe even someone who sat on that Sanhedrin high council and he'd give all that up to be on Jerusalem's most wanted list. Waste the few years that he had left being hauled around from Roman court to Roman court. This is crazy stuff. This is absolute foolishness. The average person's eyes, this just does not compute. Was Paul clueless? Did he just not get it? Was he just so deeply entrenched in these religious beliefs of his and that combined with his old age? He had just lost all touch here. Well, we know that's not the case. In fact, we know that he was very much aware of how all of this Jesus, all of this salvation stuff that he was laying out before them, he was very much aware of how people were going to receive it. You got to look at 1 Corinthians one eighteen, where he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Did you hear that? It's folly. Do you know what that means? That means that the people you and I are called to share Jesus with, the world around us that so desperately is in need of this hope of Christ, the forgiveness of their sins, the restoration that they can only experience in in Jesus Christ that restores their relationship with their creator and gives them this inheritance that is beyond all comparison, chances are they're gonna look at it and they're gonna go, Completely ridiculous. How's that for demotivation? Okay, now get out there and go share the gospel, right? (laughs) How's that for demotivation for for you and I, people who we despise looking foolish more than anything else? Some would rather die than risk their, their reputations by just getting up in front of a crowd and speaking to others. How's that for encouragement? No wonder why so many Christians, they, they are content to hide in the shadows or in their cubicles or behind closed doors with the blinds drawn or, or behind a computer screen or behind some sort of manufactured facade they've constructed to convince everyone around them that, well, they're no different than anybody else. I get it. Makes perfect sense. Why would anyone want to be a witness for the work that Jesus Christ accomplished in calling them out of darkness and into his marvelous light if they're going to be looked at nine times out of ten? It's probably more like, you know, 99 times out of 100. They're going to be looked at as completely crazy. I think this kind of explains the predicament of uh, our nation and, and the church in general. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a good reason that people aren't going out there and sharing the gospel like they need to. Why? I'll tell you why. Why should you do it? Because they know that the good news is not crazy talk. It's actually just what Paul said it was. The word of the cross is foolish foolish to the folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And my friends, that's exactly what Paul declared in Romans 1:16. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Yeah, there's a really good chance that a lot of people are going to think that this guy is nuts, but you know what? there is a chance that maybe, just maybe, the Spirit of God is at work calling some of them to have the scales fall off of their eyes, hearts to be turned in such a way that they wholeheartedly embrace this foolish-sounding message and are brought from death into marvelous light. Do you hear me, church? Festus interrupted and yelled at, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul replies in verse 25, I'm not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Do you see the determination? Do you see the complete disregard for his own reputation? Paul is a man on a mission. He has a God-given calling, doesn't he? To get the good news out and he is going to do it unashamedly. He continues, for the king knows about these things and to him I speak boldly. He is just looking at that king now. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa. I wonder if people are just going, I can't believe he's talking to him like this. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. All the stops, all the stops Paul is pulling out here. And now he calls out to the king himself. He wants the call to be crystal clear. Agrippa, he knew, he knew, was familiar with all these Jewish teachings and of all the things that the prophets had spoken about a Messiah. Not only did he know that he was aware of them, he knew that he believed them. And if that was the case, then he had to lay before the king the call. What would he say? What would he say? What would the king, how would the king respond to what Paul is saying here? that Jesus is the fulfillment of this, all of this prophecy that I know you believe in. And that's where I imagine Agri- Agrippa totally composed and yet eyes darting, watching all of these people who are here, wondering how I'm going to respond. And probably a, a, a nervous response He goes, Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? It's absolutely ridiculous, of course. How could you think that I would be persuaded? And God only knows whether or not there was actual conflict going on inside Agrippa's heart. But the reality is pride got the better of him and would not let him take hold of the offer that Paul was handing to him right there. And so he implies that it would be absolutely ridiculous for him to buy into what Paul is is selling, at in, in in so little time. And Paul replies, "Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains, of course." And this is where it's laid out for us, church. It's, it's just laid out before a glamorous and powerful earthly king, the humble apostle. He couldn't care less about whether or not people thought him a fool if it meant the possibility that one more person might come to saving faith in Jesus. Here's the big idea. For the glory of God and the salvation of souls, servants of the eternal king, bear witness to the foolish sounding gospel that's what we do are you willing to play the fool maybe stumble maybe stutter over your testimony of how Christ brought you out of this darkness into the marvelous light are you willing to do that for for the glory of your king who gave you the order but also for the salvation of the souls that are before you. Now, some of us, we get really tripped up when it comes to sharing this hope of ours. It just, it's just a huge stumbling point. We just go, ah, think about it. Oh, I don't think I can do that. And we don't share because I think one of the main reasons is we don't wanna look foolish. And we don't wanna mess it up either. And that's the excuse we usually go to. I don't wanna mess it up, so I'm gonna let that leave that to the experts here. But you know, when you consider what is at stake we gotta put those fears aside. Don't know what to say? I think if I asked many, you raise your hands, we'd probably just go, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to say. How, how do I say it in a convincing way? Here's what you need to do though. Just do what Paul did. <laughs> Give them your story. Tell them who you were where you were headed, tell them what Jesus did, tell them how you responded, and what you are now, and then offer the invitation. It's as easy as that, but that might look foolish. What if I look foolish? You probably will. You probably will, because the message of the cross is foolishness in the eyes of those who do not believe. But in reality, it is the power of God and the great hope that your king has called you to share. For the glory of God and the salvation of souls, servants of the eternal king, bear witness To a foolish sounding, yet all-powerful in its effect, gospel. Amen? Lord, we come before you and we thank you for the example of an imperfect man, one of the greatest of sinners who you called out of darkness, brought into your marvelous light, gave him a mission that, is really the same as our mission. And you did incredible things through this man. Numbers of converts aside, as we watch the the humility and the boldness of him to stand before kings and for your spirit to move him to just faithfully deliver the message and hand out the call, Lord, I am in awe because I know my own heart and I know that I do not want to look foolish. And I know, Lord, that I am not alone. Lord, would you raise up in us your people the desire to be faithful to you, the desire to be to honor you, the desire to be about our Father's business and to present the gospel to our friends, to our neighbors, to our enemies, to our authorities, because this is our one and only hope. And when it comes to how we how we look, may we just throw that to the floor and say, that doesn't matter. I'm here to please my King. Lord, use us. The humble, resources, our stumbling, stuttering words, our our shy personalities, our, our lack of eloquence. Lord, use us in spite of all of that, that your word may go forth and people may come to Jesus. Fill us, Lord, with boldness, with enthusiasm, with excitement and great love that knows no bounds the desires to reach people who are even those who come against us, stand against us, ha- accuse us, falsely, wrongly accuse us, persecute us. To them, Lord, may we share the hope. and pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbfoc.org.